Amen. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles uh, in the little racks underneath the seats. Uh, so if you, you prefer that route, please grab one of those. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we would absolutely adore for you to take that one home. Uh, we value God's Word here. We believe it has the ability to convict of sin and draw people to repentance. We believe it's the primary means by which God makes himself known to us as his creation. And so uh, we, we value the word being proclaimed. We value the word being read. We believe that God uses it effectually for his purposes and his kingdom. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, please take that one home and start reading it. Um, we would call that a win. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we took a, a break. We called a time out for three weeks, and we talked about uh, three things that we uh, highlight around here, call valuable around here, and what we call our mission statement. Uh, we spent three weeks talking about why and we value knowing God and loving one another and serving in the world. We talked about uh, why that's important to us, what, the, what kinds of things those drive around here, and that was great and that was valuable. It was a good season to call a time out for that, but now it's time to get our head back into Ephesians. Uh, it's time to uh, start zero and down, and I promise you, uh, we're going to finish chapter two today, so, uh, yeah, all right, we're just moving along at light speed, all right, so uh, Ephesians chapter two, uh, if you are new, maybe you uh, started hanging out uh, in the last three weeks while we were taking a time out, if you're new, uh, Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the ancient city, first century city of Ephesus. Ephesus is nothing but ruins today, uh, but back in its heyday in the first century, early part of the first century, there was a big earthquake that happened in about 70-ish AD, uh, give or take a few years, uh, and it decimated the city and they didn't rebuild. All right? uh, but before that, uh, it was one of the biggest cities in the world at the time. All right? And so uh, back in Paul's heyday when he was there, he helped plant the church in Ephesus and he was removed. And then he writes a letter back to the Ephesian church several years later, six or seven, eight-ish years later. And uh, he addresses all these kinds of things. And Ephesus, back in its heyday, was a massive deal. It was a major hub. It was a port city on the edge of what's now Turkey. Uh, it was a major hub for economics. It was a major hub for culture. But both of those things took a back seat to the real cash cow of the city, which was religion. It was a massive hub for religious things. There was a silversmith guild there that made silver statues of all the Greek and Roman gods and, and shipped them all over the Mediterranean. That brought a lot of cash into the city. But the, the big deal, the big money maker was the Temple of Artemis. And I'm slowing down my words to give Garrett enough time to make Maybe, just maybe, get a picture on the screen. Hey, look, there's an artist rendering of what the Temple of Artemis might have looked like. It's nothing but ruins today. It's just a square on the ground. Right, but they think that's, what might, it might, that's actually the ruins of the great amphitheater, which holds about twenty to 25,000 people. So think Wrigley Field, all right? Or, or Fenway. Maybe that's a better way to go. All right, um... <laughs> I've been to both. I like Fenway better, but Wrigley was awesome, okay? All right, so here's the thing. Um... Ephesus was a big deal, and the Temple of Artemis was the reason why it was a big deal, all right? Uh, those of you who are new may have still have heard of the, uh, the Temple of Artemis because that temple is on a famous little list called the Seven Wonders of the Ancient World, right? Uh, the Pyramids of Giza, the Lighthouse of Alexandria, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, uh, you know the drill, the Colossus of Rhodes, all those kinds of things. The Temple of Artemis in Ephesus was on that list, or is on that list, and so uh, it... it was a driving factor in a lot of the culture and values and mores of the city of Ephesus. And the church in Ephesus 
had the responsibility to preach the gospel faithfully in the shadow of that magnificent temple, right? That's not an easy thing to do. When you are in a culture and there's a steamroller in that culture that dictates everything in the city to have the countercultural message, probably feel pretty small, don't you? Pretty inconsequential. Artemis was pretty much the goddess of fruitfulness. You, you brought your little offering in your specific little fashion and she was supposed to make stuff more fruitful, right? Whether it's your crops or your wife or whatever. And so a major point that Paul drives home in the opening chapters of his letters just how different the true God is from the false god Artemis. On a good day, I, I don't think Artemis is real, but on a good day, you would still describe her as capricious, right? She could be moved and swayed, bought with a price, but really you were just kind of rolling your dice and hoping you caught her on a good day, right? But the true God, the true God is eternal and good, Paul tells us. That his plan exists from before the foundation of the world. He can't be bought. You kidding me? Not Yahweh. Not the true God. God can't be bought. His plan is eternal and therefore unthwartable. The the words that Paul uses in chapter 1 is that his plan existed from before the foundation of the world. You can't get this God to do your bidding. You're not in control here. God is. And so Paul's point of emphasis over and over again in the first couple of chapters is that that our God and the work he is doing is a complete reversal of the world and the cultural values revolving around, swirling around the Ephesian church, right? And ultimately, us as well. So y'all ready to look at chapter 2, verse 11? We could do something else. Chapter 2, verse 11. Verse 11, here he goes. Therefore, time out. All right, English speakers. When you come to the word therefore at the beginning of a paragraph, what should you do? You figure out what came before that, right? Otherwise, you're reading something out of context, right? So let's figure out what the therefore is there for, right? So what's going on in the first 10 verses of chapter 2? We talked about it a few weeks ago. It's the gospel spelled out in detail, right? That we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, right? And then he goes on to say, but God. The gospel is that we deserve the punishment for our sin. It's coming to me. It's owed to me. I've earned it. But God is good. And God is rich in mercy. And God loves with a great love. And in spite of myself, he saves and he, the, uh, Paul spells out in the first few verses of chapter 2 that even though I am spiritually dead, separated from God because of my sin, because of my trespass, God instead makes me alive by uniting me to himself. That's the gospel. He also tells us that this gospel is not something that we've earned, but is actually a gift. Even the faith, the trust that he is going to do what he says he's going to do is not something I've mustered up, but a gift he has bestowed upon me in his goodness. He also tells us that the prize of this gospel is not, not a heaven to come, but Jesus in that heaven to come. 
That the thing we're chasing after is not some promised reward of this or that, but the promised reward of his full and unfailing, never more to be by ourselves presence. That we get God and we get him in the full and we get him forever. He also tells us that, that the fruit of this gospel changes some things in our here and now. That he has created us for good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's what verse 10 says, right? That, that a Jesus-changed heart is brought back into line with who he has created us to be. And so we simply walk. That's verses 1 through 10. And so in light of that, standing on the shoulders of that, Paul says, therefore, that's a big transition, right? Therefore, what does he say? Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Okay, so Paul calls his audience here Gentiles and the uncircumcised. All right, so in case you don't have a lot of a church background, those aren't compliments, He's, that's not a polite, happy little greeting, right? He calls them Gentiles and the uncircumcised. The Greek word for, that's translated as Gentiles there is the Greek word ethne, right? And some of you have some balls rolling around in your head right now because you've heard that word before, right? Where have you heard it? Matthew 28. Jesus tells his disciples, go into all the world. And what does he tell them to do? Make, the, make disciples of all nations. That word nations right there is the word ethne, Right? Make disciples of all nations, teaching them, baptizing them, all those things, right? right? And so in Matthew 28, Jesus uses the word ethne in a positive way, right? He's saying, listen, all those nations, they're mine. Go get them and make them disciples. In Ephesians 2, though, Paul uses ethne in a slightly less awesome way. He says, you other nations... You other nations. The Jews saw the world as two groups of people, Jews and non-Jews. They called them Gentiles, right? You had the Jews, and then you had, well, everybody else. You had the people of promise, and then you had the people who had no clue, right? Paul says, you Gentiles and uncircumcised, the Jews were the people of promise and the rest of the people weren't. And they had a physical marking on their body to designate them, identify them as God's chosen people, right? Circumcision. Now, I don't know how long it's been since you've looked at a map of that part of the world real carefully, but Turkey and Israel aren't in the same place. Is that a shocker to you? Maybe we should have a geography class. Turkey and Israel, nowhere near each other. At least not in the, let's just walk there real quick kind of way. So while it's true that there are probably a number of Jewish believers in the church at Ephesus because of the diaspora and, and Jews kind of moved around and, and then you got uh, the, the scattering of the Jews in, in Acts 8. And so uh, some, there's some Jewish believers that have, that have made their way into other places. But by and large, what culture is making up the church at Ephesus? It's not Jewish believers. 
It's Gentile believers, right? And so here in chapter 2, Paul reminds the church at Ephesus, hey, you got some problems between those two cultures. I don't know if you're aware of that. There's a disconnect, a cultural, and even a racial divide between these two groups of people in God's church. You remember? Does that seem counterintuitive to you? Does, does it seem counterintuitive that Paul would say, hey, remember the fact that you two don't get along? Is that what he's doing? That's what he's doing, isn't he? Therefore, remember, call to your attention, bring back to mind that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by what is called the circumcised. I don't know if you remember, but there's this whole list of reasons why you two shouldn't get along. And then he turns up the volume in verse 12. Remember, there it is again, that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, so he says that you were separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So what in the world does it mean for Israel to be a commonwealth? It means there's a wealth that's shared in common, right? That's what that word means. So are there good things that came to the world through the Jewish people? Yeah, there were. We can list some of them, right? The law, like the Ten Commandments, right? The law, that came through the Jewish people. Now, the Bible teaches that the purpose, the end goal of the law, the overarching purpose that supersedes all other purposes of the law is to show us our need for a Savior, right? Now, there's other really good things wrapped up into that. There's good reasons that God gave the law, but the reason above all reasons is to show us how desperately we need Jesus, but unless God is making a covenant relationship with the Jewish people and says, this is how you live pleasing to me, we don't have the law, right? The Bible teaches that we have the law because God loved people enough to say, this is how you live pleasing to me. We also have the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, right? Stories like Abraham and David. Isaiah, Jeremiah, the, all those minor prophets you don't remember. We have the record of what they did and how they pointed over and over again to a coming Jesus. That's literally just the recorded history of a specific people group, isn't it? One of the things that we get because, because of God's relationship with the Jews is that we have the rest of the Old Testament. We also have the sacrificial system. The Bible teaches that the sacrificial system was given chiefly as a picture of the sacrifice that Jesus would have to make for us, right? But why do we have the sacrificial system? Because God created a system where a sinful people could live close to and in proximity with a holy God, right? That's what the sacrificial system was for in the Old Testament, even though we look back to it as a shadow of a Jesus to come, the, the world that the Jewish people were living in, operating in, they, they needed a way to not be consumed by an almighty and holy God. And so God gave them the sacrificial system 
so that they could live as he tabernacled among them, right? We have all of these things to thank for the Jewish people. And Paul here says that all the other nations of the world up till this point have no idea that this is going on. They're clueless, right? They were outside the commonwealth of Israel and they were clueless to the good things God was doing. But there's a fourth thing that they were clueless to and he says it right here. He says that they were, they were clueless to the covenant of promise. He calls them strangers to it, right? So what's Paul talking about? They had no idea that the promised Messiah was coming. That's a sad reality. Like, think about that for a second. Like, to see that the world is obviously broken, and despite your best efforts to be able to do absolutely nothing about it, To not only live in a world where you can do nothing about your greatest problems, but to also have never, ever heard that there is one day coming a fix for all your greatest problems? Oh, that's tragic. Paul says they are without the promise, and therefore they are without hope, he says. Oh, what a sad reality. He says they're without hope. Paul says that there is an eternity level difference in both the world and the world view when it comes to the divide between Jew and Gentile. But there's also a qualifier that we hadn't talked about yet, right? The word were. You were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenant of promise. You were, you were, you were. So what in the world happened? Verse 13. But now. Does that sound familiar? If you've been here through the Ephesians series, it should sound familiar, right? But now, there was a massive problem. There's separation here. There's an issue on the table. But now, something massive has absolutely changed everything. That, those are the stakes that we're talking about here, right? There, there's, a, there's a problem, and it's a problem that we can't handle. There's a problem that, that, that's too big for any of us, but something has changed. Anybody who's been here for the length of this series think that this is something that the Jewish and Gentile believers just kind of figured out on their own? Nope. In other words, do you think the, the Jewish and Gentile believers just had this moment of epiphany and they're like, this will solve all of our problems. And they like worked it out and everybody won. So what changed? Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought what? Near by the blood of Christ. So in verse four of chapter two, Paul says that we are separated from God because of our sins, but God bridges that gap, right? Verse 13, Paul says that we are separated from each other, but God bridges the gap. Jesus doesn't just reconcile us to himself. Jesus reconciles us to each other. That's what Paul's saying in verse 13 here, right? He says that it's by the blood of Christ, but God brings us near. How does he do it? Because Jesus bled. 
Not only does the death of Jesus on the cross reconcile us to the Father, but it also serves to reconcile us to each other. And how in the world does he do that? Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Okay, so there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in there. Uh, But Paul just said that Jesus abolishes the law expressed in ordinances. That ordinances part tells us that we're not talking about the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. We're talking about all the the social structure and and, and identity commands, the laws that God gave specifically to uh, delineate, to to separate a people group away from all the other people groups around them, right? So the dietary laws and the washing laws and the don't touch unclean things laws, right? Those laws. We're talking specifically about those. The, the, The things expressly given to identify God's people as distinct from all the peoples around them. So maybe you're the type to, to ask the question, I don't know, maybe you're working through the truth claims of Jesus and the gospel and all those kinds of things. Maybe you're the type to ask the question, why do Christians say that some laws in the Old Testament are no longer in place and some laws are still in place? Like, and usually it comes in the form of, of the question, why are Christians allowed to eat shellfish and wear clothes with mixed materials but they say other stuff is still a sin, right? That's usually how it comes. So here's the super short answer, right? Because there's now a new way of identifying God's people. We don't, we don't have to be delineated by shellfish anymore. And we're not delineated, separated from the peoples around us by what type of clothing we wear. And there's no longer an external physical marking on us to say, this is who belongs to God and all those others are not. Instead of an external law and an external marking, we have an internal marking and a law that is written now on our hearts. The short answer to the why are these no longer in place, but these are, it's because the laws that are expressly given to identify God's people, not the ones that, that talk about a moral standing before a holy God. Let's, let's put those on the shelf for a second. Just talk about the things that are meant to ex- explicitly separate one people group from another. Paul in Ephesians 2 says, Jesus abolishes all of those. How does he... How does he do that? Through his broken flesh, he tears down the dividing wall of hostility. Now he's speaking metaphorically here, but there's, this is being played out in a time in history where there are literal walls between Jew and Gentile, right? Have you ever seen a picture of the first century temple? Wall. And inside that, there's a wall. And inside that, there's a wall. Those are different courts. And depending on who you were was, was how far in you were allowed to walk, right? Whether you were a Jewish man or a priest or a Jewish woman, the outermost court was the court of the Gentiles. And to walk into the next court when you didn't belong there was asking for them to kill you. There are literal walls culturally speaking, between Jewish and Gentile peoples. 
And metaphorically so, Jesus says, I'm tearing all those walls down. There's no longer anything that separates you because I've united you to me. He says that Jesus creates a new man where there once were two. What does that mean? It's, it's a part of a larger doctrine called Coram Deo. Coram Deo literally means to live in the presence of God. All right? So there's a lot wrapped up into that. But a part of Coram Deo is to say that a Jewish man, when he is reconciled, brought back together with Jesus, doesn't become a Gentile. He's still Jewish, but he's not simply Jewish. He's not just Jewish. He's a new man. And a Gentile believer, when he's reconciled to Jesus, he doesn't become a Jew. He's not simply a Gentile either. He is a new creation in Christ. Theologians sometimes call this the third man. We are no longer who we, are, who we were. We are now something new entirely. And it doesn't mean that there aren't influences from our culture and our past in our life. But listen, there is now nothing to cling to. Nothing to cling to. In the presence of God, Jew and Gentile are united together in Jesus in a way that nothing else can unite them. And when I say nothing else, I mean that literally. I don't know if you pay attention, but um, we live in a world that has no shortage of racial and cultural conflict. Oh, you're not shocked? But we also live in a world that has no shortage of opinions about what the fix is either. Anybody else keeping up with that? Seems like as many people want to talk about the issues have a different opinion in some manner or level of what the fix is, right? Whether that's education or, or poverty issues or everyone finally admitting that there's some form of closet racist. I, we have no shortage of people saying, that's the problem. If we just fix that problem, all of our problems would go away. Now don't mishear me. I, I think education is great. In fact, I think it's more valuable than we often give it credit. To teach someone how to make sense of the world around them changes the way they live, doesn't it? Education is super important. Poverty is also a real issue. I, is it possible that systems and structures designed by people with something, with a dog in the hunt, can sometimes be abusive of people? Absolutely, it's possible. And I think a heart <laughs> that values people more than our systems and structures will at least have a smidge of compassion to say, okay, let's take an honest look at this, right? And the Christian in the room ought to be the very first person to say, listen, there are things in me that I'm not even aware of sometimes that can be displeasing to God. Sin absolutely can exist in my heart. But what if those are only temporary fixes to an eternal problem? What if those are only temporary fixes to something that's far larger than education or poverty or race issues? Look at verse 14 again. For he himself is our peace. Who's the he? See, the thing that makes Jesus' promise to unite us different than what the rest of the world 
tends to offer. So we don't unite around a cause and we don't unite around an ideal and we don't unite around some preferred version of a utopian future as if we could even like figure out and agree on what that ought to look like. We don't unite around any of those things. What do, you, what do we unite around? A savior, right? We unite around a savior. See, long before we were enemies of each other, the Bible teaches that we are first and foremost enemies of God. We unite around a savior who saw a need far deeper than the conflict between you and I and went to work fixing the root problem. The root problem. We unite around a Savior who brings us back to himself. We unite around a Savior who took off his outer outer garment and washed the disciples' feet. We unite around a Savior who has called us to invite new disciples into the fold from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every language. We unite around a Savior who said that the greatest people in his kingdom would be the ones to make themselves into a servant of all. See, to see the world in terms of us versus them, is antithetical to the gospel. It's also backwards. Because unless I have Jewish blood pulsing through my veins, I'm not an us. I'm a them. According to Ephesians 2, according to the Apostle Paul, I belong in the category of someone who used to be an alien, a stranger to the covenant of promise. God's grace. There's a were in there. By God's grace, he is reconciling me to himself, right? By God's grace, he has made a way where there was, where there was before no way. And instead of just being Stephen Woodard, I am Stephen Woodard, the new man. And the things that define me, things that I came out of, while they're still important to me, they're not things I cling to as if they are still the defining thing in me. I can live sacrificially and others focused, putting my brother's needs above my own because at the end of the day, my identity isn't found in who I once was. It's found in who Jesus is making me to be. Look at verse 17. And he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we, have, or we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, in Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So there is now no such thing as a second-class citizen in this church. Just not. The Bible teaches that we are all on equal footing before Christ, who, by the way, was himself rejected. But the rejected stone has become the cornerstone and he unites us to himself and in so doing, we are made into a temple, Paul calls us. Paul here says that he dwells in us. The Bible teaches pretty clearly that when someone becomes a follower of Jesus, becomes a Christian, 
that God takes up residence in them, right? That he regenerates and breathes life into them, that he convicts them of sin, that he, that he gifts them for the work of ministry, and that he points them, exalts them to Jesus. He, he exalts Jesus in their heart, right? The, the Bible teaches pretty clearly that when someone becomes a follower of Jesus, that God takes up residence in them, individually. But Paul's not talking about individuals here, is he? He says that God dwells in us corporately, which means, church, that when we walk in the unity that God has called us to walk in, when we walk in the other's focus, I will put down my rights so that you may succeed kind of attitude that he has called us to walk in, God dwells in us as a church body. And we get more of Jesus together than any one of us would ever get on our own. We get more of Jesus together than any one of us would ever get on our own. He dwells in us corporately. And when we don't, when we fail to walk in that unity, we become an, a great indictment on the church don't we? I hope that strikes you as a tragic thing. One of the most glorious realities of the gospel is that the local church becomes the place where unity is found across divides that just dumbfounds the rest of the world. How do they pull that off? And they'll try to copy it. And hear me, they will fail. Because before we can be reconciled to each other on an eternal scale, we must first be reconciled to he who is eternal. Before we can be reconciled to each other in a way that actually changes things, we must first die to ourself and be raised to newness with Christ. The old man, the old Stephen, has a pretty consistent habit of being me-focused. But the new man, the new man is fueled for kingdom work, which is others-focused and empties myself so that others may succeed. You want to fix the greatest problems in the world? How about we take a stab at the root issue? Because before we can be united to each other, we must first be united to him. Jesus himself is the great wall destroyer. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, we press in, right? We lay our hearts bare before him as if he didn't already know us deeper than we do. Like any of these exercises, it's really more about us confessing that, that issue. Those of you with kids have walked through that. You know they broke the lamp, you want to get them to say that they broke the lamp. We lay our hearts bare before him and allow him to convict us of known sin and also to, to pull out and bring to the surface unknown sin. We press into God this morning. We press into our relationships with each other. The things that so easily separate us, whether that's major issues like 
race issues or politic issues or whatever. That's the little things, like this problem that was a conflict between two people and we just never addressed it. Can I be honest, when we see things in light of eternity, those things look pretty pathetic, don't they? So much so that the, the pastoral counsel in me wants to say, when, when, when issues are brought forward, when, when, when we, we feel the hair on the back of our neck kind of stand up and we want to get you know, real riled up about this issue or that issue, my knee-jerk response is to say, how's your relationship with Jesus? Not that you can't have an opinion, you should have an opinion. We should speak eloquently and articulately about all of these kind of issues. We ought to be light in a dark world. That's great and good, but man, when they drive us emotionally, maybe our sights are on the wrong thing. And we're seeing with something less than eternal eyes. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, we press into God, we press into each other, dropping our scepter, picking up the apron. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus. Man, I'm glad you're here. If you're working through the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel, he is a big God. And the Bible teaches that he is reconciling all things to himself and that when you and I are both reconciled to him, that we're reconciled to each other. But listen, that reconciled to each other piece, that's secondary. I think it's also a natural byproduct, but it's secondary. First, you must be reconciled to him. Bible teaches as clearly as it teaches anything else that the thing that separates us from a holy God is my sin, our sin. So if you're here this morning for the very first time, you want to repent of that sin and come to him as Lord, and we want to give you an opportunity to do that. I'm going to pray, we're going to sing, It'll be your chance to respond however God's calling you to respond. Let's pray. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for being a God who doesn't just deal with the spiritual and then walk away. But you get your hands dirty in every little recess and corner of our hearts and our lives. Your lordship encompasses the whole man. In the places that my heart still kicks back and wants to control and wants to, to handle my own business, would you take that over? Would you convict me of sin and show me your goodness? Would you show me that you are a God who, when I finally get smart enough to give things over to you, you handle it better than I ever could anyways? God, would you save people this morning? Would you breathe life into lost souls today?